It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. January doldrums are here, Chris, and we are scraping the barrels of the internet for things to talk about. Um, (laughs) We were going to talk about Jared Leto today, and we're still going to talk about Mr. Leto, who apparently is some kind of like Hollywood actor or something. Oh, please. Um, (laughs) But in between the time that we decided to uh, do an intro bit about, about Jared and his recent climbing indiscretion, there was some actual news that happened. Yes. Uh, the first winter ascent of K2 fell to a group of uh, Sherpa, a group of Nepali climbers. Mm-hmm. And although it's not in Nepal, that needs to be noted. K2's in Pakistan. In Pakistan. Yeah. yeah. But Nepal, a, a team of Nepali and Sherpa climbers, 10 of them, reached the top of the second highest mountain. So K2 was the last of the 8,000ers that hadn't been climbed in winter. So it was kind of like a... It was one of those like last great mountaineering challenges that was everyone was really pining for, just like anxious to see when it was going to get done and who was going to do it. Um, And so, yeah, this this year answered that question. It was pretty cool to see, you know, people not of Pakistan, but of that kind of region, um, not, you know, not the typical European Westerner mountaineers who, who, who conquest all of these peaks. I think that was kind of like a, a, a moment of celebration in the mountaineering world yeah and it's been a wild attempt the last few years that have involved a lot of drama death as usual Mm -hmm. and also you know pulling climbers from k2 to go to nanga parbat for rescues because there's just not very many people in the in the himalaya during or in the karakoram in this case during uh the winter so it's not like the usual zoo that you see in the in the summertime so yeah so it's been a, a wild kind of thing that's getting reported pretty heavily the last couple of years. So I think that also, I mean, I, in the, in the stuff that I read that, you know, this was something that was organized with at least part of making a statement in mind. And particularly, I think that's probably coming a lot from, from one of the co-leaders on the trip, uh, which is Nims die, mm-hmm. um, uh, a climber that did all the 14 or all the 8,000 meter peaks in record an amazing record time. What was it last year? Not mm-hmm. last year, 2020, but 2019. Yeah. And we reported with, uh, Freddie Wilkinson here on the podcast. So if you want to go back and listen to that, but yeah, he, he sounds like they were, you know, definitely like we want to be the ones to, to pluck this one because we want to join, you know, the ranks, if you will, and not just be these side men to all these ascents. Yeah. And, uh, Nims did the, did K2 without oxygen as we, we just kind of found out this morning, um, which is just adds to the the grandeur of his achievement. Um, it sounds like he was maybe the only one, but that's still unclear at this point in time. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's just such an interesting turn because of this whole history of of the Sherpa definitely being. I mean, despite the fact that you know Tenzing Norgay was a co first ascensionist of Everest, you mm-hmm. know, a, a Sherpa and. At the time, Edmund Hillary and him never said who stepped up there first. It was it was a co-summit. Mm-hmm. And yet the rest of the history of the Himalaya has been mostly that these guys have been side, you know, sort of sidemen or workers, if you will. I think, I don't know what are the, the all the different circumstances and all the different sort of cultural changes that have allowed them to 
rise to the forefront in this case, but uh, it's long overdue because they, I mean, I don't think there's many Himalayan climbers who would doubt that they've always been the strongest ones um, on the mountain. And when you talk about something like this, which requires that kind of endurance and suffering, I think they were sort of uniquely suited to uh, to do this ascent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, I think from just talking to friends and other people who've climbed K2, uh, it sounds like just such a crapshoot. Like, so, it, you have to be a strong climber, but so much of it is just luck with the weather. Mm-hmm. Like, you, it needs to be good conditions. You need to get a weather window. The Karakoram are notoriously more just, like, tougher weather conditions. Like, the jet stream is just way more intense. And so, the weather changes more rapidly, so your your windows are smaller by nature. And then, yeah, just arriving in at K2 base camp, you know, not sick in good shape, getting acclimatized, getting the weather window. It's like, it's kind of all, a, a lot of pieces just have to fall into place to, to get it done. And I think that's why it's taken so long mm-hmm. to, for it to happen. Speaking of the, all the factors that have to go into it, a mountain like K2, we always talk about objective danger. And one thing about winter is that it just amplifies all those objective dangers. You know, mm. the snow covers heavier, so there's more chances of avalanches freeze thaws, you know, a bigger deal. So there's more chances of all sorts of things falling apart and pointing out that objective danger in a lot of ways can just be looked at as random danger, right? You know, things fall and chance happens and getting hit by one of those chances is, is also a big part of, you know, blowing up one of these, these expeditions where Mm. the same spot everybody else walked by the day before, even hours before is the path of something that decided to cut loose. So, Mm. Um, there's all, I mean, there's just so much like roll the dice that goes into this. And there's a Spanish guy, I think who died. Yeah. Yeah. This like guy, um, I, I'm going to pronounce his name as best I can. I, I, uh, Serge Minghote is probably pretty close, but a uh, Spanish climber was killed again uh, on a climate acclimatizing run on the descent off of, you know, not even any sort of serious summit bid, um, but just speaks to the kind of randomness of what can happen. And I don't know the mechanics of, of what killed him, but, you know, it was certainly likely a, either a mistake fall or, or some objective danger, Mm -hmm. um, that, that took him out. So, you know, it's serious business up there, especially in the winter. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the folks that pride themselves into going after these things in the winter, probably are thinking about themselves a little bit as throwbacks to a time when, you know, all the mountains felt this way then. And, and to go and do it in winter versus the season is to kind of say that, yeah, the season's too, you know, it's too for sure. Yeah. Than than what I want. I want this randomness, this, this difficulty that you can't really find coming out of the K2 base camp in the summer rather. Yeah. It's so funny that, you know, just to like talk about the Sherpa recognition, um, which, you know, feels sadly underappreciated, you know, it's like, you just think about what happens on Everest every single year, you know, there's a group of Sherpas who literally put the ropes up for everyone else and like boot pack the trail to the summit. And they're the ones who go up there first and break the trail and set the route. And then everyone else who like follows in their footsteps, literally, you know, are the ones who were celebrated and, um, but they don't, you don't ever, they don't get credit for that because that's not what Everest is about right now. Yeah. Or ever has been, you know, or ever has it's been, ever, yeah. it's, it's like the, well, maybe you know, not ever, you know, at one point it was like shrouded in, 
prestige. Yeah, yeah, you know? for sure. But I'm I'm just saying it's never been about these these uh, the porters and sherpas and all these right. sort of side. No, yeah, and, that's and, a good point. You know, it's like the it, it started out you know, a full vestige of imperialism, mm-hmm. right? It, it, you know, British imperialism or, or a number of European, you know, empires that, that sort of infringed on this part of the world. And it, it was, you know, and it was all this thing where they, you're part of the explorers club. Yeah, yeah exactly. Back in London. You know, and, and your porter set up your little table so you could drink tea <laughs> on your way into Everest. Literally, you know, it's like, it's crazy, but I mean, it was all this like, you know, this projection of empire right. was a hundred percent what it was about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all th- those vestiges are still there. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's still about climbers generally from wealthy places in the world going there and, and sort of like spraying their ego on mountains. And I'm not just talking, you know, our normal bitch about like guided climbing and all the climbing is yeah. like that in a, in a certain way. Yeah. What's you know? changed is it's not from, from back then to now, it's not about the glory of the nation sure. as much as it's about the glory of your sponsor or right. your individual, you know. The great nation yeah. of North Face or Red Bull right. or whatnot, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. But hats off to these guys, uh, you know, Red Bull hats off to these <laughs> these folk guys that did this. And, um, you know, just every step to legitimize their the skill and, and you know, the the sort of pride of of the Sherpa is always a good one, I think. Yeah. So one other thing I caught wind of that maybe is worth mentioning is, uh, Brittany Gorris, who's a crack climber, track climber on the scene right now, cranking them out. She, uh, climbed 514 down in Sedona, a, a route called East coast fist bump did a, uh, an ascent of that, not a first ascent. It's a repeat, but, um, just joining the kind of rarefied world of 514 trad mm. in general, you know, men and women, but also a very rarefied world of women who've climbed that grade on on gear. Basically, you know, sport climbed it, worked it, and from what I read just briefly, and this is just being reported right now, she worked it out and actually fired it on her first lead attempt after having top roped it and, and sort of figured out the gear, nice. which is kind of the modern approach to hard hard trad climbing and hard crack climbing. So pretty rad. And, yeah. and again shout out Brittany. So I'm having a hard time thinking of of like other women who have climbed 514 trad um babsy babsy yeah because yeah she did green spit recently yeah and she well green spits down downgraded it's oh, not shit. 514 anymore i just actually found that out from pete whitaker today. okay he mentioned it but <laughs> it, it it does remind me that it got it got downgraded right after um it wasn't one of these things where they downgraded after after babsy did it <laughs> it at rate rate i think on the second ascent actually okay um, they, they kind of dropped it a bit but uh but Magic Mushroom has 514 on it, right? Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so they're... That's well, we, I'm going to give it to her one way or the other. Yeah. Babsy gets 514. <laughs> um, yeah, and China Doll. Like, I know Heather Widener, I think, claimed 514. I still don't one. understand I don't, what... There's all kinds of grades and styles for that route. Yeah, really which confusing. parts are which. So, um, But we'll give it to, to Heather, too, because we love Heather. Yeah. So. Anyway, um, not that we are here to bestow this grace upon these these women. Don't <laughs> no, don't, don't, don't don't at me. <laughs> no, this is this this is exactly where you come to get yeah, your exactly the, your 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 ascent. Heather uh, will be excited to notar- find out. notarized. She's been welcome to do this. She's been notarized. Yeah, um, if you need your five fourteen trad ascent notarized, just send us an email. Send us an email, and we'll see. We'll put it to committee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyhow, awesome, Brittany. 
keep killing it. I think there's a lot more to come from her as well. She's in the thick of it right now in her prime. Um, one ascent that I'm not going to notarize is the <laughs> ascent of this formation in Joshua Tree <laughs> by our friend Jared Leto, who um, was recently appeared in a bunch of f- photos that Jimmy Chen had shot for this like new advertising campaign around the North Face and Gucci who uh, I guess just teamed up to do a collaboration. Like, I don't know what that means, but like they made Gucci North Face clothes. And there is some internet drama around this because in one of the photos, it's a really striking photo. It's like the classic posed photograph of, of a climber who's kind of like kicking away from the wall and his, his leg is in like a, a place that's like dramatic, kind of separates him again from the rock and so he's off against the skyline and looks like it's just like one or two points of contact with the rock and um just like the classic like posed position that you see in a lot of photographs but um which would have been fine but there was an an additional yellow card on this on this photograph (laughs) and uh and so far as the the top rope that he was clearly using was photoshopped out of the picture so I don't know if there's much to talk about here. Like, I don't that unless you have strong feelings about Gucci or Jared Leto, Chris, which I'm guessing you don't. But yeah, I don't know. I thought that we could we could twist our heads around what what this picture and collaboration and says about the state of climbing, if anything. Um, you know, I think that like the fashion world in this case, uh, this is sort of like the next kind of bag of rice thrown on the pile. But they've always dabbled in in climbing. Like, you know, these photos have appeared for years where all of a sudden some runway, like elaborate runway, crazy dress in quotation marks, they have a chalk bag on for some reason. Like, mm. you know, the designer was just like, look at this thing. We'll just put this in here too, you know. With oh, those, yeah, yeah. I mean, you I know, remember I'm, those. <laughs> yeah, and I'm talking about like runway level crap that you would never wear, like right. that weird place of fashion that, you know, goes so out the wall that nobody ever is actually going to wear any of that crap. There's, you know, or a, there'll be a, like a quick draw hanging on them. Right. Like it was like laying around and they're like, click this to you. <laughs> Off you go now. And they run out onto the runway. I mean, it literally <laughs> looks like that a lot of times. So every once in a while it creeps in there. But, you know, just part of like the popularity of climbing in the mainstream, it was like bound to happen and bound to continue to happen. These collaborations, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I, again, it's like, there's this word collaboration's been thrown around, but I really just feel like it's, you know, it's just more promotion. Yeah. I think it's kind of this new trend in the fashion world to have these really, these like very exclusive releases, mm-hmm. um, like the Supreme brand does this shit. And like, so anyway, I think it's kind of in that vein of that you, you have to go to a Gucci store on some date to buy a Gucci hat with the North face logo on it. And it right. probably, who knows what it costs, like probably a thousand bucks or something like that. So yeah, it's an interesting idea. Like what is going to draw a person to go to that store to buy that thousand dollar beanie? Um, is it Jared Leto? Is it Jared Leto climbing in Joshua tree? Would the top, if the top rope had just been left in the photograph, like would that have, you know, deterred someone from that, that perspective, you know, Gucci buyer from going to that store and being like, fuck this. Right. Like I'm not, I'm not a Gumby. Like I'm not going to buy a thousand dollar hat that Jared Leto's wearing because 
Unless he was soloing. Unless he was soloing. If he was yeah. really soloing, then I'll buy the yeah, hat. But exactly. now that I found out that he was on top rope, forget <laughs> it. I mean, it's just the idea that a climber going and buying any of this stuff is is outrageous in my mind anyway. Like a yeah. thousand bucks is how long in your van? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Like, like, so you got a hat. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't think it's some like gigantic travesty and I don't, I haven't been watching sort of the troll world to see if anybody's like truly outraged by this whole thing. The article we looked at had a shot of, you know, of Jared slightly lower on the same formation and you can clearly see the top rope. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I, and, you know, it's not like this is some nefarious action to hide, you know, Jared Leto's climbing resume from us or something like that. So it's like, whatever, you know, it's just, it's just this little blip. And, you know, the articles, again, I'm doing my podcast air quotes, you know, the article I saw on it and and a couple other ones are all, they're all, they're, they're written as if they're journalism, but they're paid articles to, to promote it, you know, um, and there's like throwaway lines, like the North face and Gucci have similar value systems or something like that. And I was just like, what does that sentence mean? (laughs) How does the North face and Gucci have similar values other than they want to make money? Off of selling things. Yeah, you know, who's like, who's benefiting from that sentence? Is the nor is Gucci benefiting more from that alignment, it, or is it the North Face? It's all I your perspective, know. right? Right. Yeah, it's really weird. You know, like a, someone who who loves sort of luxury art type items is like, yes, North Face is being elevated into our world, our incredible world, and us are like, yeah, well, North Face makes kick ass clothes that help you climb shit, so Gucci's getting some love from. You know, trying to make Gucci seem cool to us. So it's really just a matter of perspective yeah. of who gets what. But, you know, obviously, anytime your logo is attached to pretty much anything but, like, used toilet paper, you're getting promotion, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a promotional thing. And, um, you know, it appears to me, and I mean, we may go into this later on a bonus episode, but, um, you know, it, having watched the world of climbing celeb- or celebrities who climb – not climbing celebrities because that means a whole new thing now that we have actual like climbers who have become celebrities. But you know, movie music celebrities that suddenly find climbing, and even before social media, it was a thing like to to sort of put yourself out as, hey, I'm I'm cool and I rock climb, and mm-hmm. here's some pictures of me doing it. But as someone who's watched that for years, I'm always interested. Okay, how long does it last? Like, what's their real interest in it? You know, it's Jared just, Leto seems like he's been involved. In that's it where forever. I was going with yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I don't really, you know, it's like, it, it always makes us a little bit cringy and suspicious when this happens, but, uh, it seems like he's sticking with it and, you know, he's, he's got like with his sort of fame and, and money, he's been able to enter the sport, you know, climbing with celebrity climbers, right. You know, Sasha and Alex and Jimmy Chin and all these people, he didn't just have to go like rummage around you know, the hidden Valley campground for, you know, some Joe blow to go climbing with. <laughs> Imagine you go to the camp four message board and it's Jared Leto's there. Yeah, yeah. Like, Hey, you, you want to drag me up a, we're like, a no, Munchinella? <laughs> um, we're like, uh, no, thanks. dude, don't even look that kind dude, of, I'll give you this Gucci hat. <laughs> Could sell it for like 800 bucks on eBay. Yeah. So, I mean, here's this guy that's been able to enter the sport with these top level climbers, but, uh, yeah, like seems to have a legitimate, a legitimate interest in it and an interest in being part of the community to a certain extent, as much as you can at that level. 
So I, I just want to talk quickly about the ethics of photoshopping out the top rope. Okay. Because there's no, it's an ad, so there, I don't think there's any rules. And it, you know, it, it makes me think of like the conversation around photoshopping models faces for Mm -hmm. you know magazine covers and like cosmopolitan or whatever there was like a pushback against that because it it um it like just like deceived people they they felt that even though it was advertising or even though it was known to be manipulated it was still a deception and so i don't know there's something about that that kind of makes me think of this or there's something about this photo of Jared soloing, not really soloing this boulder that um, makes me think of that. And I wonder if that's the, does that pretend the future of Instagram photography in any way? Uh, you know, because we already see lots of climbers posting themselves on routes that they haven't done, you know, and there's like this um, sort of suggestion that they could climb that hard or they have done the route that they're on. So it's it just seems like a very like slippery slope uh, thing that's happening with photography and you know I don't know if like Jared Leto this single photo is going to change the conversation at all but I just see the photography on Instagram in general going in that direction of being more and more I don't know people are probably going to start photoshopping out their top ropes and because it'll be a cooler photo for their Instagram feed mm-hmm. they'll get more likes. And that's what they want. And so why not do that? You know, they're not, they don't have to, in their caption, they don't have to say that they did or didn't do the route. Then who cares? Like, right. they, so I don't know. I just feel like there's more of this coming and it seems like it's going in that direction anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, we've, I think we've lamented the erosion of transparency around climate yeah. and style and things, uh, you know, to the point of like being old, crusty has but, uh, you know, I think it's important. And, and the, the, the one thing I do appreciate, you know, like I said, I don't think people need to like lose their minds about this or like, you know, send death threats to Jared Leto or Jimmy Chin or anything like that. No, not at all. But there is, you know, there is anytime this stuff happens and you remember this from the magazines, working in the magazines for years, like climbers do get you know, the the minute they get a whiff of bullshit, they actually do push back against it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's been at times, you know, hysterical, but at times it's a, something of a bulwark of like saying, hey, you know, this whole sport depends on a certain amount of honesty. Mm-hmm. Um, this thing that's done in a solitary sense in the mountains away from everybody, you know, you can march down out of the hills and say whatever you wanted to say about what you did. And the fact that we still push back against it gives me a little bit of hope, even if it's, you know, it's a a minute or what's the death by a thousand cuts kind of a thing that feels like it's always coming. Yeah. Um, But whenever it, you think it's dead, there's somebody's like, no, no, we have to keep this honest. You know, I want to start a campaign and I'm saying this like half serious uh, about that just normalizes top roping photos. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that we should just normalize top roping. Yeah, it's it's we should embrace it photographically as well as in our in our hearts and souls. Yeah, I mean we, you know, we have our friend Maury. That it's the purest form of of roped climbing is the top <laughs> rope. And and honestly, if you're like, if if you go a long time without top roping, and then you go and you get like a nice top rope on something, 
it reminds you just how fucking great it is mm-hmm. to top rope a climb, especially a, a free snake where you don't even have to unclip gear. It's just like pure pleasure to climb that way. I remember an interview I did with Michael Reardon years ago who he, his speculation was the top roping like literally was the future of hard rock climbing because the movement in his mind would be so difficult that you wouldn't be able to like clip a, you know, draw or mm-hmm. whatever it was, play skier. And so it was like top roping had to be the future of like the hardest descents. Well, I mean, it's top roping is just long bouldering. It's just long boulder. Yeah. yeah. And and we all we all totally agree that the hardest movement in climbing is on boulders. See, like that, if you don't believe that, go try to boulder for a little while. <laughs> this is a this is a good this is good uh language to nor- help normalize yes. top roping is yeah. we just call it long boulder. Long bouldering. Yeah. 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 There you go. We just invented long bouldering, people. <laughs> We're starting a long bouldering team. So please submit your top roping resume to us, your hardest top rope flashes on sites uh, all that stuff and we'll see if we can get you on the team yeah Natalie Berry is the editor-in-chief of UKC Climbing one of the most popular climbing websites in the world she joined us from her home in Scotland in the UK lockdowns have been a bit stricter than in, in the US and People like on UKC, we have a forum, so we get not only feedback on social media, but directly on our website. So any article has comments linked to it. I suppose in some ways we kind of asked for flack because when the f- the pandemic first started, we made a decision quite early on. Like we were contacted by a virologist. He was a climber and a virologist, and he said, "This is gonna go bad very quickly." Like. People don't understand how serious this is. Like it just kicked off in China and it was kind of spreading around the world slowly. And then he got in touch with us and said, nobody should be climbing. Climbing walls should shut in the next few days. Everything is going to shut down. And this was at a stage when I don't think anyone was taking it as seriously as they should have been. And then on the back of that information, we decided to just put out a news report which said time to reconsider we don't think people should be going to the climbing walls we think it's going to very quickly be taken out of people's hands because the government's going to shut down climbing walls and they did the next day so it was a very difficult time for businesses they didn't know whether to, they had to stay open and people didn't know whether to climb um, and then we also shut down our logbooks so we stopped free people from recording their climbs it's a place where people go and you know take off climbs from a day and they're very popular so that was quite a bold decision on our part and it was the right decision at the time like looking back with hindsight we were like so naive (laughs) like we just couldn't see what was coming but we were proud of that decision I think and it turned out to be a good one but then it was trying to decide at what point do you start saying it's okay to go climbing now like once the lockdowns ended and once people could climb again at what point do we reopen the logbooks at what point do we start saying so-and-so has ticked this route wherever? And like, what about other countries where the lockdowns are different and the rules are different and people are just voicing different opinions on it? You know, it was very divisive. Like on the website, we have a forum feature, like thumbs up for like, thumbs down for dislike. And almost every post would get like 50-50 split. And there's not many issues, like even political issues, like 
that divide people as much as COVID has on the website. Uh, just to like take a step back, and I'd love to just talk about who you are because I've I've long admired your work as a writer, and you've been doing climbing journalism for you know six or seven years now, and I just tracked your career and, and noticed just how much better your stories and your work get. You seem to have a really good eye for what's interesting in the climbing world and an ability to write about a lot of topics that are sort of these hot button topics without, uh, you know, just navigating through that minefield in a way that um, I think a lesser writer or person would, would get themselves blown up. Um, and certainly anyone who's, who's been a writer, myself included, has, has stepped on a few of those landmines in the past and knows the consequences of what that is like. And so maybe you could just tell us a bit about your, how you got into being a climbing writer and um, how do you see your career up to this point as um, editor-in-chief of UKClimbing.com? I started climbing quite young. I started when I was nine years old. I got into it completely by chance, so I wasn't you know, I didn't have climbing in the family. I just went to a shopping center and they had a mobile climbing wall and I had a go and really liked it. Um, you know, did competitions, competed for Great Britain. I wasn't much of an outdoor climber. My family were quite against it. They thought it was quite scary and dangerous. Um, quite kind of, yeah, fearful of me climbing. I'm not sure they 100% approved at first. And at school, I guess the two things were kind of emerging at the same time, even though I didn't really realize it. I really liked languages. I had a bit of a weird obsession with words when I was younger. Like when I was learning to read, I would like remember words that I'd read when I was out about and at school and then go back and tell my mum which words I'd learned to read. And just a lot of things that kind of pointed me towards an obsession almost with language. So I started doing competitions and at school I really liked writing so I would write about competitions you know there'd be in exams you'd get questions like tell us about a time when you were really motivated or tell us about a time when you achieved something and I could always kind of work climbing into them somehow um again competitions not outdoor adventures or anything my family weren't outdoorsy at all and then once I got a bit older I stopped competing went to university to study foreign languages French and German um, and in my year abroad, I I was placed in Austria and France and I could kind of travel around to the World Cups quite a bit, which was really fun. And there I met Eddie Folk from the Circuit Climbing Magazine. I did a bit of journalistic work for him, did interviews with French climbers, German-speaking climbers for his magazine project. And I didn't really realise that at the time. I didn't really think what I was doing was journalism. I just enjoyed it. It was a fun way to travel and meet friends make new friends and just have fun and then after that went back to uni graduated and didn't have any clue what I wanted to do <laughs> I didn't really want to be a languages teacher or I didn't want to be a climber I kind of stopped competing didn't want to be a full-time climber I thought I'd maybe do something to do with climbing like marketing or something because I did a marketing internship in France so I got a job at climbing wall <laughs> at the university like most people do. And then a job advert came up for UKC and looking for an assistant editor. Immediately it grabbed me and I was like, oh, that's kind of good. Like I like writing. I've got good English skills. I like climbing. <laughs> I think the only thing that put me off applying was that I didn't really have much knowledge at all of like outdoor climbing. 
like well by this point I'd sport climbed relatively hard and I was an outdoor climber but I wasn't like a Sheffield based grit head like most of most of the stuff at UKC and its readership and you know I didn't know anything about trad or multi-pitch or mountaineering um alpinism but I was starting to sort of become interested in the mountains like when I was in on my gap year I was living in Grenoble which is a very mountainous city lots of climbers and alpinists so I think I, in my cover letter in my interview I was like yeah I'm starting to get into outdoor climbing and you know more adventurous things I'm not just a plastic gym rat <laughs> I'm not just a, a comp climber um I think one of the test articles I had to do was like top 10 tips for boulderers and then a competition report on the world championships or something um and I just somehow <laughs> sold myself as like yeah a good assistant editor and got the job and now you've you've um transitioned quite a ways away from the the comp indoor comp scene and it seems from your Instagram feed that I've seen that you're you know you've lived in Chamonix for a while and you're doing you know roots in the mountains and trad climbing and all of that um I mean I did get back into competing I had about four or five years off just as I got into work like I found it so difficult to balance the two and then last year just by chance I managed to get back onto the British bouldering team and did a few world cups but again it was really difficult to balance and I think for now what I like most is just getting out in the mountains when we can <laughs> haven't done much of it in the last year but yeah we moved to Chamonix from Sheffield like I've lived in Scotland, Sheffield, moved to Chamonix for four years, got more into mountaineering, alpinism, like nothing sketchy, just I just like being outdoors and doing sport high up and easy multi-pitch trad routes and stuff. It was just so different to what I'd grown up with and again I don't think my parents approved but um, yeah just the old cliche of broadening your horizons and I think as I got more into different disciplines I also became more interested and like more knowledgeable about different aspects of climbing and of course that helped in writing about them it does help to have some understanding of what you're actually writing about yeah I think it's kind of interesting that the the climbing world in terms of the journalism that I think climbers read anyway it seems that like it's really important that the the people writing about it you know, have a very, very deep understanding of it and even participate in it. And, and that's not necessarily the case, you know, outside sports. Like, you know, most sports journalists, you know, they've never been a professional soccer player, but they're they're writing about it. They've never been a professional football player, but they're writing about it. And the fact is, is that we can be in the same world as professional climbers, even if we're not necessarily getting a paycheck for it. What What are your thoughts about you know, that depth of understanding that needs to be there when you're you're writing about the discipline that you're uh, that you can also participate in. Yeah, I think there's so much complexity to climbing compared to other sports. I mean, I say that I know nothing about like football or cricket. Like, don't get me started on that. I certainly couldn't. Cricket seems really complicated. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't write about those <laughs> off the bat. But um, yeah, I think you need to have a good understanding of styles and nuance and especially in things like trad climbing like I didn't really understand what pink point and head point what all these different terms meant when I first started and it's something and then you you progress up to like 
multi-day ascents on El Capitan or in the mountains. And again, there's even more information that you need to take in and understand in order to be able to write about it properly. And I think that's one thing that the mainstream media, like non-climbing journalists struggle with. They struggle to kind of see past the risk and the death and daredevil aspect of the sport. Like they can't really see beyond that and they just kind of hold it at arm's length and don't really know what to do with it. So I think having that insight and being a climber yourself and knowing like what Alex Honnold did on Freerider is crazy. Like I can't really understand it, but at the same time I can understand it because I know how much preparation he put into it and how he processes risk and whereas you know most conventional non-climbing journalists wouldn't have that kind of insight understanding certainly and and it feels feels like that you could you know it's pretty easy to go and climb something that even a free soloist has climbed you know in Mm -hmm. terms of 510 511 I don't I'm not even going to attempt British grades on those, so yeah. you'll just have to do the conversion in your I'm mind. just as bad at UFE 70 yeah. decimal. <laughs> okay, so, but yeah, so I mean, you can go and part, I mean, you, you can go and do the climb, even if you have a rope on it's. I, I've done it where I've, I've, I've done the thought experiment of like, wow, what if I didn't have a rope on? And usually it, it you know, I get super terrified, um, even to the point of, of, you know, on El Cap of, up. of being... Yeah, of, of like, you know, having to take because I'm scared because I'm like imagining this ropeless thing, you know, particularly on, on the um, the free blast on El Cap. But um, the other question I wanted to ask you before we move on from your sort of career, I, I might have missed this. How long have you been at um, UKC Climbing? Um, I think this Are is my you? sixth year. Started in 2014. Yeah. And that's like, and that's your full time uh, your yeah. full-time profession. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, looking at your, at your resume, it's, you, you know, you've got, I mean, I think you either speak or can write and translate French and German mm-hmm. fluently. And, and as, as an experienced writer, I feel like you could be dropped into anywhere in sort of not only just journalism, but with those kind of things, business and, you know, travel and, and all sorts of these places. Do you ever feel drawn away from climbing towards I mean a something maybe more lucrative <laughs> but also you know do you have a have a foot in another world that draws you um or at least maybe in your head like well might that might be interesting too yeah I think there's last year I started spinning quite a lot of plates like I started translating books so like climbing books for vertebrate publishing um I translated Elizabeth Revol's memoir to live and like a guidebook and then I started doing a bit of coaching again because I used to coach like when I was competing and just to earn a bit of money for university (laughs) Um, and yeah I'd like to try and write for other publications like bigger publications because I think for me as climbing grows one of the most important things is going to be bridging that gap between how the outside world perceives us and you know what climbing actually is about so I feel like if I can you know write for newspapers a bit more you can help kind of break down that communication or those miscommunications a lot of the time I think someone like Andrew does this really well and people like John Branch you know being able to see (laughs) mentioned you in the same sentence yeah someone like John Branch can come from outside of the sport 
of any sport or any activity like he covers a lot of niche things and interests and he can see that activity through the eyes of the people that do it rather than just thinking what is this all about and he can kind of combine you know good narrative like it gets brings characters into the story and then all the factual information and I think it's a really good skill like I think it's it's pretty rare but I'd love to be able to learn to do that kind of thing and bring climbing to a broader audience I think but it's hard to do and I certainly I'm not in it for the money (laughs) oh good because that's you shouldn't be doing that for the money (laughs) um yeah, just to comment on that, I think that writing for mainstream publications is very edifying and, and is a good way to improve your writing as a climbing writer because you can really learn how to zero in on what's important and what isn't important. Because so much of the nuance and some of the things that we would get hang up on as climbers just aren't important in the end of the day on in terms of telling the story, like what's the real story that you're trying to tell. And it's a way of just shifting your perspective in a way that's clarifying about what makes climbing interesting and important. But I wanted to uh, go back a little bit and I want to talk about just the state of climbing media uh, itself and not the mainstream version of it. But I'm interested to get your feedback on where you think climbing media is right now and where it's going as someone who's uh, much younger than Chris and I. And your experience, I think, with climbing media is, is maybe different than ours. But before we get into that, I guess my first preface question would be if you as a climbing writer were drawn into uh, writing about climbing through the literature that you have in the UK, which is just so rich. Um, some of the books and stories and, and history, was was that part of your interest yeah, I think when I started, like I was totally unaware of all this literature because I wasn't into mountaineering or trad climbing. So I hadn't read Jim Perrin or you know Paul Pritchard and all these amazing British writers that we've got. But I discovered them through working at UKC. You know, initially I thought the role was just going to be reporting on X climbs Y and then you know, interview interviewing a few pro climbers or whatever. I didn't really consider it as a literature based job. And at university, I was actually very literature focused. Like a lot of the courses I chose were French literature and philosophy and German philosophy. And so again, it was another like I had interest, and they all kind of met in one job that I didn't really know existed for me. Um, so yeah, I started reading. Paul Pritchard he was one of the first interviews I did um I realized that I really like interviews and finding out what pe- makes people tick um and then Jim Perrin Ed Douglas um through discovering these writers and what they'd written about I guess I kind of jumped from writing about climbing to writing about ideas within climbing and then other bigger ideas that encompass society and climbing like mental health and diversity and loads of different topics so it all kind of linked together unbeknown to me but yeah I think there's differences as well um between the US and the UK like I don't really see many young writers like people under 30 or maybe even 40 writing about climbing as much in the UK I think there's more of a tendency to 
make films or podcasts um which is great like we need a variety of media but there's just it's the not as many form. writers it seems to be like there's more <laughs> probably like there's more writers in the US like I don't know that's just my impression and I'm trying to encourage more voices to writing in the UK but I find it quite difficult I think people just get pulled by YouTube and filmmaking and I just I don't think there's the same room for depth and scrutiny uh, as you can in writing maybe I'm biased because I'm a writer but um, yeah, well, whereas I, I think I, you've I got quite a wealth way. of talent in the US. I, f- I feel the same way. And it's, um, yeah, so one thing I wanted to get your perspective on is is UKC has always had, just from my perspective, just tremendous like traffic, like almost inexplicably large traffic. And I w- want to know what your, if you, if you can divulge the secrets for why this website's so popular. Because, you know, if you were to tell me that the, the UK, had a firm grip on all internet traffic and climbing. It would just seem absurd on its face, but it was true for a long time. I don't know if it's still true, but a lot of the the stories are based around news. And I think you've remarked on just how that's changed in, in an era where all the news is like first reported on Instagram, for example, by the climbers themselves. So I'd love to just get your big picture perspective on the state of climbing media and, and UKC's role in that. Yeah, news being you know first reported on Instagram, that is a bit of an issue. Like sometimes we get people complaining to us that we've not reported on something when you know clearly they've seen it on Instagram and they're like, oh, so and so has done that. Why is it not on UKC? But we can't, <laughs> we can't just. Well, we can just whack in an Instagram post, but if you want a bit more depth and information, you know, it takes time to get in touch with the climber and then write it up and check it all and get photography and stuff. And, you know, everyone wants everything the second, you know, it's like fast food media. People just want things instantly, instant gratification. And that's quite hard to compete with. Like what's the right level of depth and when does it become just copying and pasting and Instagram embed? Well, is there even a print magazine in the UK now? I, I believe there were two at some point. At one point, are they both out of business? Climb magazine folded um, about two years ago. Climber magazine's still going, so they have an online website and digital. Oh, and print magazine as well. I love print media. I love the tangibility of it, and it 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 feels good to hold a magazine in your hands. Like I was sad when Climb folded, and when you hear the news of different publications you know not being able to continue is really sad but I just think with like the future of digital advertising and the way things are going for the younger generation I think print is going to be so hard to maintain like I think I think it's so impressive that Alpinist managed to keep up that output of like such high quality journalism and keep up the print magazine but I don't think that would be possible in the UK like the market, the outdoor market as a whole on in the US is just so much bigger than the UK or perhaps even Europe. I just generally look to the US to see what everyone's doing and kind of learn from people and read the stuff. We're doing insurrections right now. Yeah, we're busy with, <laughs> yeah. Uh, with yeah, trying to topple the government. <laughs> I so, noticed. You know. <laughs> But yeah. uh, it's interesting because it, while you're talking, it was making me think about climbing narc, 
mm-hmm. which has sort of been forgotten. But it, it's interesting that for a long time in the U.S., the I think the one of the biggest news, like pure climbing news websites was run by just a, a guy, mm-hmm. you know, as like a part, not even really a part-time thing. It was like a full hobby for him for a long time. And then he just like, was like, I don't have time for this anymore. Good day. And he was like out. And all of a sudden we lost this like giant news aggregate website mm-hmm. that was just a guy in his house, you know, like yeah. it's just a, it's a wild like landscape when it comes to all that. In Wisconsin, if I'm not mistaken. I think sometimes it's just. Yeah. I think he was in Madison. Yeah. I guess sometimes it just takes one person with enthusiasm just to keep it all afloat. Um, like we have got a really small editorial team but we have quite a big team managing like the back end of the website and the technical team mm-hmm. and we've also got rock facts as well the guidebook component so yeah we're lucky that that supports us as well especially in covid times it's now it's hard to imagine the, uh, the climbing narc model would be successful now um in terms of just being a place where you just aggregate news i don't know i don't know i'd love to hear your thoughts natalie what do you think of that as a does that seem relevant or does that just seem like a dumb idea at this point? I guess it's probably been replaced by something like Reddit, Reddit slash r slash climbing, wherever you read it. Yeah, I know quite a few younger climbers who go on that and it's not so much new. Well, they do share news on it, but it's mostly just look at this weird thing I found on the internet. Yeah, I don't really know whether an aggregate site would be necessary. In some ways, I feel like as sad as it is, people are just going to Instagram for their news. They might check back and see if there's an interview, Alex Magos or Adamondra, but for the most part, people are kind of only interested in the headlines. Most of the time, they don't click the articles. Yeah, I, I think places like Reddit <clears throat> and then, of course, like Instagram and TikTok. TikTok really fascinates me. Yeah. <laughs> It kind of bemuses me, but fascinates me. Like I'm writing a piece about like the growth in climbing YouTubers and TikTok. Well, it's not really taken off on TikTok just yet, even though there's like loads of other sports, like adventure sports, like surfing and mountain biking, which seem really popular. Climbing isn't really taken off. I um, I actually just, I don't know, probably what, a month ago, I texted Andrew. I'm like, we should be on TikTok. We could like... Be the first big climbing thing on TikTok. And both of us were like, nah, I I think we're too old. We're like 30 years too old for that. Actually, Epic TV are on it. Um, And so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't totally forgot about Epic TV. I think they're they're like probably, I don't see them as competitors because I used to live in the same building as Matt Groom and Shannon, (laughs) weirdly. They're they're doing something slightly different to us. Like they're doing more video based journalism and they often like use, incorporate our news inside their videos i think video journalism is going to be i think that's already taking off like people like albert ock and plastic weekly like that kind of youtube scene quite intelligent commentary on like the olympics and like trends in climbing that's going to be more popular again i think people are going to gravitate towards that rather than writing polemic essays and stuff and well, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, we were ch- before we started recording, we were both talking about how we're both a little burnt out on writing about climbing. And maybe that's part of the mm-hmm. reason why where that burnout comes from is this just sense that there's an irrelevance to it in a way. Um, 
And mm-hmm. because, you know, are people actually even reading this stuff or is it, are they skimming through it on their iPhone? And, you know, like to your point about, you know, just the tangible nature of sitting down with something printed in your hands is just such a rare pleasure in 2021. And yet it's something that we can't lose. I, I would think we would all be worse for the wear if that was, if that just went away. I feel like what you were saying about people not reading is true. Like there's so many comments that come up in the forums and it's obvious and on social media is obvious, like across all forms of newspaper articles, climbing articles, people aren't reading. They just read a headline and I've got a bit of headline anxiety. Like I just want to make sure that I try and get as much information in the headline as possible because I know people aren't going to read past the first paragraph or the headline even. It's not just that people aren't reading the articles and I actually don't even think they're reading the headlines. I think that they're reading what their friends on social media Mm -hmm. say about something. And then because that person is someone they trust, they take that opinion as their own. And so if someone said this is a problematic article or this is a problematic person, this should be canceled or this should you shouldn't read this or we should be angry about this topic, then mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who that's good enough for them. And that's their opinion now, too. So I don't actually get the sense that there's a lot of people even engaging directly with the subject matter. And maybe, yeah, it goes as far as the headline, but yeah. it does it definitely doesn't seem to go much further. We had a classic the other day, um, an opinion piece which called for route setting being a bit more accessible to new climbers, like not doing huge moves on jugs or something. And it was very like a basic premise, like and quite a fundamental thing that we should make indoor climbing quite accessible to new people and not put them off especially as most more people are coming into the sport not as outdoor climbers but just as a way of getting fit and they're discovering the sport you know people of all different shapes and sizes and people were twisting the author's words to say oh she just wants like she wants every route to be like possible for a short person and like and then people are coming, oh, it's hard for tall people as well and and, like even though she'd addressed this and she was like I just want a middle ground like it's not I'm not asking for that much and people just put their own opinions into the opinion piece and then dislike people for having an opinion but then when you ask them to write their own opinion piece they don't want to write one and that's another issue I have a lot of the time I think people they're quite happy to share opinions on social media and you think oh that's really interesting and like I contact them say oh would you like to write about this in a bit more depth in an article and then they'll be like, oh, no, no. So, like they won't reply or they'll decline. Like they don't really want to extrapolate on their thoughts, but they'll happily like tweet out something or put it on Instagram, but not really explore it in more depth, which I think is a shame. It's a shame because writing, I mean, all good writing is inherently an expression of being able to think clearly about something. And the avoidance to write well, or the avoidance to read something that's well-written is just a sign of being incapable of, you know, thinking through something in a deep and meaningful way. So I think that that is a problem that people are for, are qu- like quickly forming opinions that they haven't really considered all the angles. And they haven't done that because writing's this like passe thing. And it's much easier to just put out you know, a hot take on your social media feed and get the adulations of all of your followers who affirm that ill-considered view 
And it's just like the self-perpetuating thing that is just making us all stupider and angrier and worse for the wear. <laughs> anyway, that's my yeah. uh, optimistic think- view of, of climbing media at the moment. <laughs> you guys, You guys both need to re-examine your relationship with climbing writing after the pandemic has has hopefully i mean let's let's say that it does in a few months um you know when we're out of this zone like i don't i just you know i don't want it coloring your your life choices right now it's like you know don't make any decisions (laughs) in this moment about about i'm gonna become a tiktoker fuck it i mean yeah yeah (laughs) i'm telling you that's that's yeah, I am on TikTok. I don't know what it is exactly, but <laughs> we're we on should there. be on there. Because here's the funny thing, Natalie, is that the Run Out podcast has neither an Instagram yeah. or a Twitter feed or a f- – oh, we do have a Facebook page that we generally ignore. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, we're like, we're like the anti-social media people. Um, I mean, we use our own from other sources, but we have no dedicated social media other than a like a how many people are like four hundred people yeah, follow our Facebook page mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, if you if you guys yeah. out there so would like that, to there's a see business us on model TikTok, for you. you can send Chris an email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how many likes do we need t- to get to get you on TikTok? <laughs> and then also in that email, uh, it sort of explain like you're explaining to your grandpa yeah. what it is because that'll help me a lot too. Yeah, and how I find it and what I do when I get there. I didn't get it either, and I'm on it. <laughs> I'm just a lurker. I'm not. I'm not really posting to. I think it pops up now and again, and we we also kind of mentioned it here on a bonus episode that we did. But there's a long-standing perception that European and uh, and UK climbers climb much better than American climbers do, <laughs> and uh, I mean this has been like examined over time, journalistically as well. Do you? agree with that and why do you think the what do you think the problem is well i think hard sport climbing and hard bouldering i think if you can push your grades in them you can like that's beneficial for trad climbing as well like everyone says your brits have got such good head for trad it's because we do it a lot and because we've got really good trad climbing like compared to other european countries that's what we do most of so that's what we not talking about me because I don't really live near the trad. That's kind of what we do best, I guess. Whereas in Europe, you've got such concentration of good sport crags. Like you've got Seus, you've got all the Spanish crags, and most of these climbers, they and they also put themselves in areas where there's lots of other good climbers, and they can kind of feed off each other. It kind of seems like that in America, like Salt Lake, like with the USA training camp. But I know that's more indoor climbing maybe just with europe being so close together and travel to different areas and different countries maybe that helped get a broader variety of climbing done and just being around so many psyched strong people i think that helps and it's also interesting Mm -hmm. to see yeah comp climbers the women who are doing 9a plus they're all comp climbers or former comp climbers you know 9a plus 9b sorry um I think having a competition background is really beneficial for training. Um, you know how to train, you know how to work hard, you know how to optimize sequences and rest efficiently. The climbing competitions have definitely lagged in just culturally, sort mm-hmm. of in like climbing culture here in the U.S. Like it's all catching up, but, um, you know, it's been firmly established in, in Europe for such a long time compared to here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, going at it not as just some sort of, 
you know, here it's just traditionally, I think, been a little bit of a sideshow. And like in recent years, it's like something you send your kids to. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, some of these kids became really good climbers, but um, but it's sort of catching up. So that that totally makes sense. I think there tends to be this weird, I don't know if this is the same, but I feel like there's a lot of people who um, compartmentalize themselves, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm always, you know, I'm always just blown away when you hear that some super gnar French alpinist doing high to high altitude mountaineering also climbs 13 D, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that just kind of like doesn't happen here. Um, in that sense. And like Chamonix, I think is just like mm-hmm. overflowing with those sorts of climbers. I think in Europe, there's definitely this kind of a growing trend of like all roundness. Like everyone wants to be like Dave McLeod and you'll be able to climb Boulder 80, sport climb eight, whatever, like just kind of climb to the same level, the same number across lots of disciplines. Like people like Tom Livingston, you know, he's climbing the Himalayas, he's sport climbing hard, he's don't know why he does bouldering, but you know, hard trad. I think Britain does lend itself quite well to being, you know, more of an all rounder. Crack climbing as well. That's a new trendy thing. <laughs> Everyone's crack climbing under bridges in the UK at the moment. Yeah, yeah. That's the current well, we state of UK. Climbing. We know whose fault that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not naming any names. <laughs> the other Tom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had both of them on the on the enormous cast last year, so yeah, um, they're cool. Guys. I tried to I tried to create a I tried to create a um, a serious rivalry between the two, but it didn't work. Yeah, you know when something makes. I tried to get one to insult the other one on my <laughs> podcast. You know when something makes <laughs> comp climbing that it's cool and like cracks are back in comp climbing. Even Adam Andres on crack and jam dinos with parkour moves thrown in. Yeah. Oh, that's where... <laughs> so Natalie, um, Inverts. Well, one this. fun question maybe to end this on is um, you, you're so tuned into the climbing news scene and what are your predictions for 2021 in terms of climbing news? What do you think is going to happen with the Olympics or do you have a, are, are you looking at something that might like, is K2 going to get the first winter ascent? What, what's your boldest or maybe most absurd ideas for what's going to go down this year? I think the Olympics could happen, but it won't be a conventional Olympics. Like I was on a press call, like we've got a press accreditation for it. And just before Christmas, like they were very optimistic about holding it. They were like, we can hold it, you know, in the current state as things are, like even without vaccines. But then I think this third wave is just, I think that's going to cause problems. If it does go ahead, it'll go ahead without crowds. Athletes will have to be vaccinated. I really hope it goes ahead because I'd love to go, but I mostly just for the athletes, I feel so sorry for them. Like they've had to go through so much uncertainty and so much limbo. Do you have a prediction for who might win? Yeah, I think, yeah, we made predictions on UKC. I think Jakob Schubert stands a good chance because he's so experienced and he's so good at managing pressure. I think Tomoa is also another contender, but I think he might crumble under the home turf pressure. Adam, I just don't think he's as kind of competent in the comp style boulders yet. Like, I mean, he's had like two years <laughs> extra to train him for it. So maybe he'll surprise us and um, maybe his speed climbing will be down to like five seconds. But um, I think maybe those three will kind of can be contenders. Then Yanya, I think Yanya, she has a tendency to crumble a bit as well um, under pressure, but I don't know. 
She's also got a climbing wall project on the go, which might be a bit distracting, whereas Shauna seems really focused. Like she's on that trajectory from like injury to hopefully doing really well. And she always does really well when the odds are against her or she's she's got a lot of pressure on her. Like she's just like how she climbed in Hachioji to come third was really impressive. So I think she'll do well and she's got a really good support system. And then Akio, I'd like to see Akio do well, maybe like second or third. She'll probably come because um, she's like only. I used to compete against her, but she was like the year above me in youth comps. So yeah, that's really impressive. I just can't imagine still competing at that level <laughs> at like thirty-one, thirty, thirty-one. Yeah, hope she does well. Is she that old? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty over the hill. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean. I know. But can't Yanya crumble a little bit and still win? Yeah, possibly. She so, seems so unstoppable. I don't know. Yeah. I really. She seems pretty in, yeah. in hand, but also the she's heat. got the power to waste problem. Yeah. I think the heat might affect some climbers unexpectedly mm-hmm. as well. Tokyo in August. Um, and then K2. Yeah. <laughs> bit of a circus at the moment um i think tamara lunga her team quite a good chance um namal perja but he's joined colin o'brady now that's what i heard i heard he was actually guiding him up the mountain or that was the frame the cynical framing of it oh yeah he's guiding him um yeah so (laughs) that's interesting but yeah i think i think tamara could do it um i think she's using oxygen don't quote me on that um but yeah some other teams are going out seem really inexperienced for the challenge i'm not sure what will happen yeah i don't know what the crazy prediction maybe like fingerboarding (laughs) oh april fool we always do an april fools last year was fingerboarding to replace speed climbing in tokyo olympics (laughs) because everyone's just obsessed with like that it's always it's always been a very british obsession like strength like basic strength at the moment everyone's just posting videos of them hanging one-armed off these small edges and how does that translate like obviously it strength does translate to climbing but it's just quite funny i can just see like we have the beast maker footless festival but i can just see more like fingerboarding events <laughs> like cropping up because of what yeah, well, covid keeps up that'll um, be the the, yeah. the entire news report is who's who's hanging on the four millimeter edge longest <laughs> that'll finally kill climbing media. <laughs> yeah fingerboard report <laughs> 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 Do you climb 514? Do you want to? Well, you can search the world over for that guidebook typo that accidentally bumped the 12B warm-up to 14B. Or you can become a patron of The Runout. Your $5.14 a month not only supports the content you are currently shamelessly consuming for free, but our savvy Patreon rope guns are also getting treated to bonus episodes like our year-end 2020 roundup. The psychological games or if Sharma was just hungry and thought he'd have a fucking cheeseburger before he won the next comp that he was going to win. So He was just like, shit, this young kid, Shawarma, what's his name? Shawarma. He smells like meat all the time. Fuck him. He's always beating me. Anyway, 
Hopefully, Magos has a similar attitude because it's it also lent itself to being um, really fun to to follow along with with Chris's career. You know. Yeah. So come down off that hangboard and support the runout today at patreon.com slash runout podcast. Mason Earl is one of the great American crack climbers of our time with such impressive first descents as the Bartlett Wash Crack, a brutal 514 splitter outside of Moab. Beyond his crack climbing prowess, as you are about to hear, Mason's genius as a musician and maestro puts even his mighty ringlocks to shame. Hey, Mason here. Today we're going back to the 20s, the 1720s, to the Baroque period. I'm going to play a piece of music by the famous composer Johann Sebastian Bach. This guy was a monster. He wrote so many classic tunes, like a Baroque Fred Becky. He actually wrote this piece I'm about to play for the cello, but today I'm playing it on the Baroque lute, sort of a, an eccentric-looking guitar-like instrument that's got 24 strings. These old-school beats feel right at home on the lute. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. 
You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalous, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Mm-hmm.